Welcome to PwC's Accounting and Reporting podcast series. Our mission is to inform and educate accountants and other stakeholders on today's most important accounting issues. I'm Heather Horn, a partner in PwC's national office, and I'll be your host today. In today's episode, we're going into the cloud. Angela Ferguson, a partner in PwC's national office, is joining us in the studio to walk through the new guidance on accounting for cloud computing arrangements. And it's not just for tech companies. So let's get started. So Angela, thanks so much for joining us today. Looking forward to our conversation about one of the new accounting standards that's going to be effective for most public companies, um, January 1, 2020, for mm -hmm. calendar year end companies, and that's related to cloud computing arrangements. And anything technology related, IT related, I think people get a little nervous. So before we even jump into this, can you explain uh, to our listeners what we mean when we say cloud computing arrangement? Sure. When we're talking about a cloud computing arrangement, this is an arrangement where a company is obtaining the right to remotely access software that doesn't reside on their own servers, but resides on the vendor's servers or on a third party's servers, i.e. in the cloud. And this is in contrast to where you might purchase or license software that's installed directly on your premises, or we sometimes call that on-premise software. But in these cloud computing arrangements that we're talking about today, you don't have possession of the software, but only the right to access the software in the cloud. And as I'm sure you're aware, it's becoming more and more common for vendors to put their offerings in the cloud. And you might hear this referred to as software as a service, or even uh, infrastructure as a service, or platform as a service. There's a lot of offerings that you now get in the cloud um, that are going to be impacted by this guidance. And Angela, I think um, when we've talked before about revenue, I've heard you talk about the accounting from the vendor side of these arrangements, but this guidance specifically is for the user of the arrangement? Exactly. This is for the customer who's receiving the service from the cloud. So it's going to apply to a lot of companies, not just technology companies, because it's anyone who is purchasing one of these services. And I guess a key thing then, if I'm a controller, in the controller's department is actually first step is probably understanding what types of arrangements I have because I think a lot of times as users, you know, people sitting at their computers, we have no idea what's going on in the background with the IT department. Right. And so it's going to be important to kind of go out and get that information. I think we'll get into that more a bit later. Yeah, exactly. I mean, from just the user's perspective, it may not feel that different using software that's installed locally versus software in the cloud. Um, so yeah, that's a really good point, having to understand which arrangements do you actually have possession of the software versus uh, just a service. Great. So then why don't we jump into the new standard itself, and maybe can you start things off by just explaining why uh, the FASB came out with this new guidance? Yeah, if you go back a few years, now it's been almost five years ago, the FASB took on a project to clarify that when a customer doesn't have uh, possession of the software or even the right to take possession of the software, that the arrangement is simply a service. And so that was the clarification they made that um, you know, when you have possession of the software, you actually record like an asset on your books, you know, an intangible or a fixed asset. In contrast, if you're just receiving a service, you're not going to have that asset 
and you're just recording it like any other purchase service expensed as incurred. So that was a clarification made several years ago, but they did not specifically address accounting for implementation costs. What's kind of unique about some of these cloud computing arrangements is that they often result in incurring a lot of upfront costs. There's costs to set up the arrangement, whether that's customizing the cloud computing arrangement or you know, integration with the vendor. And that is a little bit unique to this service compared to some other types of services. So there was some diversity in how people accounted for those upfront costs, meaning are they capitalized, are they expensed, and, and just how are they presented in the financials. So because of that diversity, um, the EITF took up a project to specifically focus on accounting for those implementation costs. And as a result, um, there's going to be more capitalization of those costs and then recognition over the arrangement. We'll, we'll get into that. But this new guidance focused on these implementation costs is going to be effective in 2020. Okay, so then, Angela, just one point to clarify. So you said that the FASB actually came out with guidance some time ago that talked about the service itself, which I guess is the hosting and sort of the ongoing use of the software. Right. And so then this guidance is specific to the actual cost of setting up the software for my own use. Exactly. Okay, that's helpful. So then let's go into, under this new guidance, how will those costs be accounted for? Right. Cost, so cost implement a cloud computing arrangement, and this is whether the implementation is being performed by your own employees or external consultants, and often you're going to be hiring a third party to do implementation. Those costs are going to be evaluated under the same framework as we use for internal use software. So that is in ASC 350-40, and that is all existing guidance. So this new standard points you to this existing framework and says for implementation costs for the cloud computing arrangement that is only a service, you're going to apply this same framework that we would use for internal use software. That framework um, is based on two things, both the nature of the costs and the stage of the project. And at a high level, Costs related to things like configuring and customizing the hosted service are often going to be capitalized, while costs like data conversion and training will be expensed. Okay, so that's, I think, an interesting point, because actually while you were speaking, I kept thinking, I think a lot of times when people think of someone else hosting their software, it seems like something very simple. But you're saying this could be something like an enterprise-wide solution or anything like that, that no different than if I had the software installed myself, there could be a lot of upfront costs to, as you said, get it ready and customized for my own company, and then getting the data into it, employees on it, all of those things is no different. It's just the fact that the software itself is going to be hosted by someone else. Yeah, that's right. I mean, some of these projects can span a long period of time, you know, over a year, and be very complex in order to get uh, the arrangement implemented. Could, and as you mentioned, some examples could be even uh, ERP software, or customer relationship management software. Some, some are, can be more simple, but others will be more complex, and thus they'll be more cost to look at. Okay, that's helpful. So then once we've gotten the cost capitalized, then what happens next? 
So once you have a capitalized cost on your books, you're going to recognize that expense over the term of the arrangement. Um, and that would be the contractual term, and then include including any options to extend the term if it's reasonably certain that you're going to exercise those options. And the recognition will generally be on a straight line basis. That's always going to be the starting point, unless there's some other basis that's more representative of the benefit being received. But I think generally we're going to see straight lines. And I guess this is where some complexity could come in if you have different modules and that are going in at different times and things like that. Yeah, possibly. I mean, we'll kind of touch on that later. But if you have an arrangement that's got multiple locations or multiple instances, you may need to do the accounting at the component level. Okay, so we can get into that. So then. How about then, once you have your costs in the books, you're expensing them, then how about if, from an impairment perspective, so let's say you decide you're no longer going to use the software, or the use changes? Sure. I mean, uh, like any asset, we're going to have to have an impairment model for assessing whether there's impairment. And the model that you're going to use is going to be the same model used for long-lived assets, and that's in ASC 360. So then, Angela, another point maybe before we move on, I know from when you were on our webcast in June and as well as other discussions we've had about this, that presentation is um, sort of a big thing with this standard and in particular that is different than the presentation for software costs. So can you walk the listeners through that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is probably the most important thing I'd want people to take away uh, from this podcast is that the presentation of these costs is prescribed by the standard and it is different than what you would um, present for software costs and different than some people anticipate. So what the standard says is that presentation um, should be in the same line items as the service fees for this cloud computing arrangement. So what does that mean? When we, we talk about the costs being capitalized on the balance sheet, you would put that in the same line item as any like prepayments for the service, so generally just other assets. And then as the costs are recognized over the arrangement period, that's going to go in the same line item that you put the service fees, so generally operating expenses. And then same in the cash flow statement, those would go through operating cash flows. So it's important to keep in mind that, that uh, even though we talk about amortizing this asset, it's not actually going through the amortization or depreciation line item like you would if you were amortizing a true software license. And so this can have an impact on certain metrics, you know, if you use EBITDA, uh, it's definitely something to keep in mind that these expenses will not be in those amortization and depreciation line items. Okay. That is definitely something helpful to point out. And then how about from a disclosure perspective? Yeah, there are a few disclosures required. I mean, one is just explaining the nature of any cloud computing arrangements that are service contracts. And then the disclosures that are required by ASC 360 for, that you provide for PP&E, you would also apply for these assets, which just include things like uh, what are the balances and the different classes of assets, and then um, information about impairment and amortization. Okay, and so then Angela, why don't we move on 
to some of the actual operational considerations with adopting because I think in a way for some companies this might be a little bit of a sleeper issue because spend so much focus on credit losses and people are just getting over leases and as we discussed up front this may be something you might not be even be as an accountant aware that you have these arrangements so can you start talking about some of the things people should think about yeah first of all and probably the number one thing is that this guidance is not optional so I know some people thought of it as an opportunity to capitalize cost but it is a requirement so if you have one of these arrangements um, you need to track the implementation costs and evaluate them to determine if there are costs that need to be capitalized. And so if you're using a third-party consultant, for example, which is very common, this may require sorting through the activities that they're performing so that you can assess whether those activities are capitalizable. And that might also require the allocating the fees you're paying to that third party to the different activities they're performing so that you can determine which cost should be capitalized. Oh, so I guess this goes back to your point that, for example, training costs would be expense. Right. And so if you're just getting a lump sum invoice from your vendor, you're going to need to go back to them and say, hey, we've got to split out these amounts. Exactly. Or do some estimation and allocation of your own to figure out which amounts to capitalize and which amounts to, to expense. The other point I would make is that the, the guidance we're talking about, the framework we're going to use for assessing these costs, like I said, it's an existing framework in 350-40. And while that can be a good thing because it's an existing framework and so it's not brand new, people have applied it before, on the other end, it's it's quite old. I mean, this guidance was originally SOP 98.1, so that tells you it's you know more than 20 years mm -hmm. old at this point. And so when we're talking about software development and how projects are managed, as you're well aware, there's been a lot of developments in that area over the last 20 years. Yes. Right? So things have changed a lot. I mean, just to name one thing, we've had the emergence of you know, agile development, which is quite different than how things were, projects were managed in the past. So when it comes to applying this 20-year-old framework, uh, it does require some judgment and, and is not always completely straightforward. Another point I would make is that, uh, that we touched on before, which is if you've got multiple locations or multiple instances of one of these arrangements, you may need to apply the guidance at the component level or module level. Um, and that's because as you pointed out, you might put different components into service at different times and you also may need to do that for impairment purposes if, for example, you abandon just one part of the arrangement at some point in the future. And then with any um, account, new accounting standard, we always talk about the new processes and controls that are required. In this case, we've got a lot of different new work streams. We are tracking these new costs and having to evaluate them. There's determining the, the life of the asset once you determine that costs should be capitalized. And then, of course, the impairment uh, assessment of those assets on a periodic basis. Yeah, I think this is a refrain we've had with some other standards that getting all the right people involved, and in particular, as we talked before, you're going to need your IT people, and there could be, I guess, tax implications and other implications. And so this is, again, 
a place where I think accountants are going to be asked to stretch themselves a little to maybe even understand some of these projects, understand the cost so they can actually apply the accounting properly. So it will take sort of both parties in order to do that. Right. And as I mentioned before, presentation of these costs is really important. So there's going to need to be coordination with like financial planning and budgeting so that they understand that these costs are not going to be flowing through amortization and depreciation but we'll be hitting you know, operating expenses and operating cash flows. Yep, so then that may even mean some education of your financial statement users and others as this goes into play. Right. So then I think that leads well into our final topic, which is adoption and transition. And in particular, one of the things we've talked about, and I know we addressed in some of our guidance, is um, some of the complexity around how you are going to adopt and retrospective versus prospective. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. There's two ways you can adopt the standard, as you just alluded to. You can adopt full retrospective, which means revising your prior period financial statements and applying it to all prior implementation projects. Or you can apply this guidance prospectively, which means you're only going to apply it to costs that are incurred after you adopt. Uh, now, clearly, it's going to be less work to adopt prospectively mm -hmm. than going back and getting all that information to, to adopt it retrospectively. But there's a couple of reasons why people might want to adopt retrospectively. The first is that if you happen to be in the middle of a project when you adopt, if you adopt prospectively, you, like I said, only apply it to cost incurred after you adopt. So you could have a situation where the costs incurred prior to adopting are accounted for one way, and the costs incurred after are accounted in a different way, even though it all relates to the same project, which could be a little complex. Especially on a go-forward, trying to keep track of right. which is which. The which, so, which. Yeah. And then also, if you've done some accounting for these costs in the past, and like I said, there's been some diversity in how companies did that accounting, and there's a preference to have comparability across all periods, that would be another reason to adopt retrospectively. Okay, and then I have another question on that, and I know you laughed at me about this when we were preparing, but I'm going to ask again anyway. So do you have to follow the same method for all your projects? Yes. So you're going to adopt the standard retrospectively or prospectively for everything. Okay. You, don't, you can't do a different adoption for different projects. You can't pick and choose and say, this one I want to do one way and right. this, the other one's the other way. Okay. Right. That's helpful clarification. And then have, we talked briefly about this, but how about the adoption date? Yeah. Public calendar year-end companies are going to have to apply in 2020 and then private companies are going to have an extra year. And you can adopt early, although we're quickly running out of time to adopt early, but you could adopt in any quarter. And that might make sense if you are uh, planning a new project or have you know see one in the near future, you may want to try to adopt the standard before that project starts. Okay, and then I guess one important thing on the effective date for private companies, I had Maria on last week, Maria Constantino, talking about the effective dates exposure draft and the FASB's uh, proposal to delay adoption dates for certain companies for uh, some standards, but this is not one of them. So Correct. This no would be in that narrow project category, so they did not decide to extend the date for this project. Okay, great. So then maybe just to wrap things up, if I'm listening and I now have questions, where can I go look for more information? Sure. I mean, you could go directly to the, the, the ASU, which is ASU 2018-15, 
We have also issued an in-depth to provide some more information on the new standard that has some more details. And then this week, we are going to be issuing an in-the-loop, which is a shorter, high-level document that can just be used particularly to educate others about this new standard and just to get a, a high-level overview. Great. And I definitely encourage people to check out the in-the-loop as you mentioned, because it is a good place to start, particularly senior members of management and, as you said, others in the company. So, great. Thank you very much for joining us today, Angela. I really appreciate your insight. Happy to. Please join me here again next week when I quiz Dusty Stallings on doing business with the government, focusing on service concession arrangements. Dusty's a partner in our national office with broad experience in interpreting the revenue recognition guidance and I'm looking forward to learning a lot from her. To make sure you catch next week's episode, subscribe to our podcast series wherever you find your content. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.